Hello, my name is Chris Tolworthy. This is a quick guide to Genesis chapters 1 through 5 as history, with a special focus on Genesis 5 as the history of Sumer. For more details, see Appendix 5 of Jack Kirby's History of the Future, a free download at tedagame.com, that's T-E-D-A-G-A-M-E dot com slash books, or buy a physical copy at lulu.com, L-U-L-U dot com. This is a huge topic. Each of these claims would require a whole book to defend. If you listen to them and think that's nonsense, I've heard the opposite. That's fine. And these are just the notes for my the podcast. As I always do, I rambled on and on and didn't even get to the main topic. So these are just the notes I would have read. If it's of any interest to you, as I said, read the book. Do your own damn research, as they say. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. Source is the Enuma Elish, and so on. Now, there was no evidence in the source material for Genesis that anybody had a seven-day creation story, but they did teach the story over seven days. So when they say the evening and the morning were the first day, they mean the evening and the morning were the first day of teaching. The New Year Agricultural Festival lasted up to seven days, sometimes 12, depending on the locale and historical period. Now, this, the seven days are irrational. If you were settling a city, you'd need to do things in this order. First, you need sunlight. Second, you need water. Third, you need plants. Fourth, you need the farming calendar, so you know when to plant things. A lot of people think day four is about stars actually appearing in the sky, but what it says is, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. This was how you ran your society, how you knew when to plant and when to harvest. Day five... They teach about animals. Day six, they teach about being ready for people. And day seven, you can then rest and have fun. Genesis 1.26 is where the people are like gods. Now, this record comes from many sources. Uh, the Egyptians, for example, had the age of the gods and demigods from 39,000 BC, according to the Turin Papyrus. Uh, I think Manetho, I think, puts it at 28,000 BC, but we can talk about this. It's, it's a very big topic. Uh, ending at 9000 BC, which would be the um, Younger Dryas climate catastrophe. The Yazidis, they face the age of the gods beginning 39,000 BC as well. The Hindus have a 12,000 year cycle. Now, the traditionally that's seen as like, um, like godly years of 360 years each. I think that's a misreading of the text. I think that um, applying Occam's razor, this has to be 12,000 literal years. This is also is confirmed by the pattern of ages which are in the Egyptian account by Manetho. So if we take that 12,000 year cycle, it's the last one to start 3000 BC. So the previous one would have been 15,000 BC, then 27,000 BC, then 39,000 BC again. In China, they also have their civilization bounded about 39,000 BC. They have like an 18,000 year block, then another 18,000 year block ending in 3000 BC. So 3000 plus 18 plus 18. 36 is 39,000 BC. Every major civilization has an age of the gods beginning 39,000 BC. Uh, Archaeology seems to confirm this. Um, back then, our brain size peaked. It's been shrinking ever since. There was more equality, of course, in these hunter-gatherer societies. What we call hunter-gatherers, what they call the golden age. There was less war. A lot of people think there was more war back then, but if you actually look for the evidence of warfare, it basically started when we started to own land. I mean, you think about it. Um, if you were President Putin, um, would you have invaded the Ukraine if there was no land to get? 
if there was no concept of land ownership, why would you do it? If you had to physically lead your people and you were naked, would you have a war? You might do, but you're much less likely to. Uh, hence, it was the golden age when people had wars, but nothing like we have today. Uh, there was less famine. A lot of people think that uh, the hunter-gatherers have to have more famine. That's because we take their land. So they're left with the badlands. So hunter-gatherers now have to live in deserts and disease-infested jungles. But when you compare like with like, hunter-gatherers and or farmers having the same kind of land, hunter-gatherers have less famine, which is obvious when you think about it, because they can simply move to a better place, whereas a farmer can't. Why did we become gods in 39,000 BC? This is the Le Champ event. This is when the north and south magnetic poles almost flipped, which caused enormous northern lights in the sky as far south as the equator. Now, if you trusted the sky to give you your timing and your understanding of the world, this was massive. The whole sky was lit up in the north. Now, you have to remember at the time, the Neanderthals basically ruled the world. They lived in the northern parts of the world, northern Asia, uh, Europe in particular. And they'd been top species, if you like, for about 100,000 years. But when the Le Champ event happened, our ancestors, the Homo sapiens, moved north and replaced the Neanderthals. This is when we triumphed in 39,000 BC, and hence all the major civilizations count the establishment of their civilization to that date. Uh, Genesis chapter 2. This is when we meet Yahweh Elohim. Now, Elohim is a plural, means the gods. Uh, whatever Elohim says is always correct. This is basically what we would call science. Um, whereas Yahweh Elohim always makes mistakes. You'll notice he doesn't know what Adam is. He hasn't been able to make it rain. He's disobeyed that Adam. He says Adam will die on the day he disobeys, and Adam does not die, and so on. So you've got two levels of gods here. Um, Genesis 2 says there are plants but no rain. The word mist is often translated, I think is a much better translation, is streams. What it's saying is there's no rain, so we have to rely on the streams. And there was no slaves to irrigate the land. The whole thing is just it's describing a, um, a drought situation, which very much reflects the Younger Dryas situation, one we finally settled um, to counter the drought, as so they plant a garden. Now, did it happen? Um, I say Yahweh acts as he is human, so that we did have, as I mentioned in the podcast, you have the, the higher gods, i.e. nature, uh, you know, the sky, the rain, the sun, and whatever. You have the, the god-men, such as Gilgamesh, who see themselves as gods, say they represent gods, but really they're obviously people. You can tell by the description, you know, who walks about in the garden, doesn't know where Adam and Eve is, and so on. Um, and they wanted slaves. Uh, the name Yahweh means he is, as in Enki. Representing water, you'll notice that water is fundamental to the whole earlier parts of Genesis uh, and Exodus. Right? Water's everywhere. And that's, that's controversial. That's a good example of uh, a topic which you read a whole whole book on. But I think it's fairly fairly clear that Yahweh is Enki. Uh, the first kings claimed, kings claimed to represent the sky gods. A garden just meant a walled area from the word ger, meaning to grasp or enclose. Uh, just like the word paradise, where para means around and uh, means to build. It was the first walled gardens. It was when people started to wall off the land and say, we own land again. It's pointed to 9000 BC. Again, and this is a big topic. The Eden was a Sumerian word for the plains away from the city. Luckily, Genesis 2 tells us where Eden was. It said it was where the Tigris, Euphrates, the Pishon and the Gihon meet when they come from. In other words, the Lake Ermia Basin. Um, the Pishon is now pronounced the Oishon. And the Gaion, my pronunciation is obviously terrible, uh, is the, the Gaion Aras, I think. 
Um, it was much more fertile back then. Today it's quite drying, but it really was a paradise back then. Um, archaeology confirms this. Gobu Stan is at the eastern end of the Eden River, the eastern Eden region, uh, by the Caspian Sea. And the remains there are from 10,000 BC. It's very famous for its art. It shows a very idyllic life with hunting, fishing and playing and travelling in large boats. We then had the drought of the Younger Dryas uh, climate disaster, leading to Gebekli Tepe and so on, about 9,500 BC, which is where we began to build walls. And then eastward, this was eastward from Israel in Eden. Uh, and then, of course, Jericho, 8,000 BC, the first gigantic wall. Genesis chapter 3. This is how we left the God King's region of the Lake Ermia Basin and how they travelled elsewhere. Now, this is just a summary. I mean, this particular one is kind of long and complicated, uh, so I won't trace every movement or the rise of the snake cults. But basically, you've got two groups of people. You've got the city folks, the God Kings, who want to rule everybody, the bosses, if you like. And you have the country folk, the pastoralists, the, the workers, if you like. And it's just the same today. You've got the city versus the country. There's always been this sort of political poles. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, this is where, where it's super interesting, about the Quayin, Q-U-A-Y-I-N, I think it is. Cain, um, basically. Uh, it's transliterated to Cain. It means the coppersmiths. These are the people of technology. Cain created metalwork, cities, musical instruments, and so on. Um, and built the first city at Eridu. That's 5,500 BC, with the first canals. It expanded the power and lots of wars over land. Um, notice that Cain and Abel is about war. Cain being the nomadic herder. Sorry, Cain. Cain being a settled farmer, sorry. Abel being the nomadic herder. It's this, this bosses versus workers thing again. And now the gods do not like the offerings from settled farmers. Um, they have lots of wars over land. Now this is confirmed in DNA. From this period, it took, I think, 7,000 to 5,000 BC. Around about 5,000 BC. DNA suggests that 16 out of every 17 males did not have children. Now, the researchers suggest the only reason that makes sense is that there must have been endless warfare. It was a bloodbath. Hence, you read in Genesis 4 that if Cain was avenged seven times for his murder, Lamech will be avenged 77 times. A massive period of thousands of years of horrific war. And it's because of this endless warfare that the country people finally decided to take refuge in the cities. It says at the end of Genesis 4, that this was the beginning of Lord worship. So this is when they moved to Uruk and the other cities and said, okay, we'll accept you as bosses because we want an end to this endless warfare. And that's when we begin Genesis 5, which has the dates, because when you live in a city, you've got temples and it's much easier to keep records then. And I mean, they did have records before, obviously, but in Genesis 5, you're actually having precise dates for particular events. Now, I argued before that these dates do match up with history. Now, if they're genuine, then obviously it has to be proto-writing, because full writing, as we know, it didn't appear until 3000 BC. This is before 3000 BC. So what you'd have had is, for example, a clay tablet with a little picture on it and some, some lines to indicate numbers. So although Genesis, as we read it today, says, you know, when Adam lived um, 130 years and began a son in his own likeness and called his name Seth, and Adam had many sons and daughters and lived another 900 years, and the total days of Adam were 930 years, blah, blah, blah. All that's basically saying is Adam 130, 900. Everything else is like oral history. It's, it's just what the people reading it would understand and how, what they'd repeat to, to fill out the details. The actual proto-writing, though, would have to be like a picture of a red man, because Adam means red man, and the number 130 and the number 900. If you remember that, it all makes sense. 
I mentioned in the podcast how Adam is a name for mankind in general. So it's not just an individual, it's a group. Just as um, uh, Jacob, Israel. Israel is a name of a person and a group and, and the area. Because before about 500 BC, the individualism wasn't really a big thing. It's all about the tribe and the group. So when you look at names like Adam, living 130 to 900, you're talking about the people of Adam. When they say they had sons and daughters, that's just a sign of, of success. Because having sons and daughters is how you passed on your... How you, how you lived. There was no, no interest in life after death back then. You lived through your tribe. So sons and daughters just meant you had a successful tribe. If you look at all these so-called names, they're all descriptions of a national characteristic and they all follow on naturally. For example, if you gain power, then you gain wealth. If you gain wealth, then you get become comfortable and so on. Um, what you've seen in Genesis chapter 5 is a list of national characteristics and the periods in which they lasted. Okay, let's start off. Um, I mentioned that at the end of chapter 4 is when they decide to accept the, the God people um, because they're sick of all the, the, the wars, all the killing, the Lamech and so on. Um, Adam means red man, it means the men in general. Um, 4000 BC is when they come to worship the Lord. Now this is confirmed, this is the start of inequality. Before 4000 BC you had the Ubaid period, which is far more egalitarian. It's quite a flat society. There wasn't a lot of difference between the kings and the rulers, kings and the ordinary people. <clears throat> After 4000 BC, you have the Uruk period. That's when you have the kings and a great, very satisfied society with, with the slaves at the bottom. So, just as, as Genesis says, this is when you began to obey the king people, the god people. Next, we have Seth. Now, Seth is a word, or S H Y T, means it's an, a verb means to give or set or place firm. Um, or as a noun, it means to refer to occupational clothing. Um, it also can describe a national foundation, for, if it's S-H-A-T. The vowels, of course, are added later. Um, so, Seth means it's a, your national, you're setting yourself as a national identity with, with a uniform and clothing and so on. Uh, so this is when um, the people, the ancestors of the Hebrews, became a separate people. And they weren't just a bunch of slaves. And this is confirmed in archaeology. Um, well, in linguistics, the Semitic language can be traced to about 5750 BC, 575, sorry, 575 before the present. That's about 3750 BC. Um, and it takes about 100 years for the isolation of a language to really become a separate language because the first generation has to completely die off, of course. So that suggests that they separated about 100 years before, with about 3850 BC. Um, Genesis says it's 3874 BC. Now these dates are based on Archbishop Usher's calculations. I have a, a lot of respect for him. Of course, they, they could be a couple of years either way. And with archaeology the, and the linguistics, you're really making an approximation as well. It could be 50 years either way. So for linguistics to say that they became a separate people in 3850, and for Genesis to say it's 3874, that is a direct hit. Uh, after the Seth era came the Enos period, or Anash, it means the people. In other words, they became distinct from the other groups in the area. Uh, 369, Genesis puts us as 3769 BC. Again, very close to the 3750 BC, uh, that, where the scholars say they were then a, a completely separate language. And you can see a conflict starting between these peoples and other peoples. For example, the, the graves at Tel Brak. So that's another direct hit. After the Enos period comes the Canaan period. Canaan means trading. And obviously, once you're a separate people, and once you've got over your initial conflicts with your neighbours, you're going to start trading with them. 
the Bible puts this as 3679 BC, and archaeology confirms this. This is only the Middle Uruk period of increasing trade. Um, after the Canaan period comes the Mahalaleel period. That means Mahalaleel means to praise the high god, and the date is 3609 BC. Um, this is confirmed by archaeology because the earliest known written texts were found at Uruk and date to about 3600 to 3500 BC. Because um, trade in, caused a big increase in riches entering the temples. Now they needed to catalogue the, these riches and that's what led to writing as we know it. Um, after the, the praising God era came the temple era. Jared means to descend, usually in the sense of descending from on high, from the high holy place. That is from, for example, the ziggurat at the centre of the city where the, the king would climb to the top and perform his sacrifices. Um, and this is, this is confirmed, this is a very, very big date. Um, Genesis puts it as 3544 BC. Archaeology says around 3500 BC is when they built the great white temple in Uruk. So a direct hit. After the Jared period is the Enoch period. You taste godhood. I mentioned this in the podcast. Huge topic, but basically it's a creation of writing. Um, the word Enoch means literally dedicated or trained. It comes from a root meaning to taste something for the first time, uh, which is closely linked in Hebrew thought. If you're trained, if you're trained in something, meant you tasted it for the first time. For example, in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah receives his calling, he has hot coals put in his mouth. He feels that fire in, in his mouth. It's a very Hebrew idea. Um, 382 to 3017 BC, according to Genesis. This is confirmed because it's the expansion of writing and wealth. It's called the Late Uruk period. When writing lets the new advances spread out, cause all kinds of improvements in terms of uh, technology, it then spreads to other cities so that the Uruk is no longer special, hence that's the end of the Late Uruk period. It does coincide pretty precisely to the dates of Enoch in the um, book of Genesis. After the Enoch period is the Methuselah period, at Mat Shalah, or the Man of the Javelin. Now, javelin throwers were high-status specialists at fighting. They weren't just farmers throwing stones or, or using spears. They were actually, you had to be trained to throw a javelin. So it suggests military strength. Um, 3317-2348 period, famously 969 years. Um, it is what the, the archaeologists call the Uruk expansion period, about 3300 to 3100 BC. The direct colonization of northern Mesopotamia and Syria. Um, the, the Genesis includes a time afterwards when they, when they um, were comfortably ruling northern Mesopotamia and Syria. So that this was the, the javelin warfare, military strength era. Lamech comes next. That means let muck to push forwards, literally, with a cattle prod. And muck means to bring low. So this is an area of expansion and conquest. Uh, Genesis puts it as 3130 BC to 2353 BC. And again, this is confirmed by archaeology. This is the second wave of expansion in the Jemdet Nasser period, which is 3100 to about 29 or 2800 BC, plus the period after when they expanded into Persia or Elam. After Lamech came the Noah period. Noah means to rest. Sumer now had a total dominance. This is a period according to Genesis 2948 BC to 1998 BC. And again, this is confirmed. This is called the early dynastic period and also the rise of Akkad. This was a period of the first stable dynasties where the king's families now were safe. You no longer had to be a great king fighting. Your lazy family could just live on wealth and comfort forever. 
Hence, it was known as the, the ruler called it the era of rest, the era of Noah. After the era of rest comes the Shem era. Shem means a name in the sense of fame and renown. Um, Genesis puts us at 2450 to 1846 BC. Again, this is confirmed. This is the era of the big men. I mentioned in the podcast, the Lugals, the great rulers marching across the earth and conquering everything. Um, the, the first of these, the most famous one, was Eniantum. Eniantum, I think. E-A-N-N-A-T-U-M, the ruler of Lagash, from 2500 to 2400 BC. That was the starting date that Genesis puts for Shem. He was one of the first verifiable emperors in history. He made a name for himself because he began as a cattle herder. In other words, he was one of Adam's people, but he became a god king. So he then became one of the, the Uruk king people. He erected the famous Stella of the Vultures to boast about his name. You then get other big men, such as Gilgamesh at Uruk. A Lugal Anamundi, he was the, the big man of heaven who sacrifices the dead. <laughs> and Sargon, of course, who defeated everybody. So this is the area of the, the people who made a name for themselves, the big men, hence Shem. Um, incidentally, I mentioned how Eniantum, or Shem, was not in the king list. I didn't mention this, I'm mentioning it now. He is not in the king list. A lot of people think that the king list is related to the names in Genesis because there's that 10 of them, or 12 or 15, or whatever the number is. Uh, this is not so. King list is basically a mess. It's, an, it's a good example of why we need Genesis. Genesis only has the major periods, like a thousand years at a time. The king list tries to list every king, and they just don't have... It's too detailed. It's, it gets sometimes too complicated, especially after the fall of civilization, when they lost the ability to keep good records. The king list is so muddled. And the anthem is not in the king list, because Genesis 5 is about Adam's people. It is, these are about the, the, the slaves and the herders. This is not about the kings. Uh, Genesis chapter 10, let me jump forward a bit here. I mentioned um, the, uh, the flood and the, the podcast. The Tower of Babel, we have no date for that, but the context does suggest it's about 2230 BC. And um, this is confirmed in archaeology. 2350 was the sh flooding of Sharapek, the chief city of, of Sumer, which is the event we remember as the, as the Great Flood, which led to Sargon conquering Sumer in 2334, the end of civilization. King Belus then founded Babel in 2286, Babel, the gate of the gods, with its famous ziggurat. And at about the same time, Sargon introduced a new language to help him administer his empire, that's Akkadian. So they are the built, there's the temple and there's the, the language. Uh, 2230 BC, his grandson Naram-Sin was the first one to directly call himself a god. Again, that's in the Tower of Babel. Uh, 2230 is also when the empire collapses, it's conquered by the Guti local, quote, barbarians, unquote. The old-style people had no interest in writing or farming. They let all the animals out. They destroyed the buildings. No writing. This is why the king list is such a mess from that point. A complete confusion. And when the people then scattered, and we see this in the Tower of Babel. We have the, the tower. We have the new language. We have the defying God. We then have the collapse and the scattering. The people disperse. Now, after this, the archaeology just gets better and better. And so we have more and more precise correlation between the archaeology and what's the data in the Bible. Um, in my book, I, I finish it at Tower of Babel. Since then, I've done a lot more research, taking us up to the age of Abraham. That'd be a whole other topic, so I think I'll stop here. But Abraham is just amazing. Abraham, I used to think, as most scholars say, is just this sort of mythical character, some local warlord, somebody unimportant. No, 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 Abraham was huge. Well, that's the end of my little um, notes for the history of 
uh, Genesis 1 through 5 and slightly thereafter. Um, in summary, it's the biggest event in history. It's how civilization began, when men were gods, about the first slaves, the first walls, the first cities, the first writing, how the first civilization fell, how it could not recover, and how the old ways survived through Abraham. All this history has been destroyed by modern scholarship, claiming that it's not real. And yet, in recent archaeology, we can see that every detail was correct. And it is all preserved by the simple priests, your local parish priests teaching people about Adam and Eve and so on. This is the real history. We used to know more history than we do now. We used to know the past, and because we knew these patterns, then we also knew the future. But we don't anymore. We are learning less and less. We're, our scholars are telling us that they're teaching us more and more. We're actually learning less and less. It's a, we live in interesting times. Thank you very much for listening.